Good evening, I'm Wes. I'm one of the rabbis here for those of you who are new to our community and want to welcome everyone to uh, this very important evening and a very importantly timed evening. And I want to say that in the following way. This is now the third time in two weeks that we cannot start a synagogue program with a synagogue program. This is now the third time in two weeks, that to start a synagogue program with a synagogue program would be off, bad pitch, not responsive to the moment. So when we did a Keeper of the Flame for the New England Federation of Men's Clubs a couple Sunday nights ago, we couldn't start with Brotherhood. We had to start with the massacre at the Tree of Life. And then at donor, beautiful, festive gathering of sisterhood last Sunday, we couldn't start with donor. We had to start with tree of life. And tonight, we can't just start. We have to start with Thousand Oaks. Another mass shooting. 12 more innocent people slain. And of course, when you read these stories, it's just so heartbreaking, like the story of Ron Helus, Ron H-E-L-U-S, who was a sergeant police in the, the police department there, who was on the phone with his wife, talking, 29-year veteran. And he says, I got to go. As a colleague, I have to attend to, I love you. Those were his last words, I love you, to his wife on the cell phone. And he rushes in to the bar and is among the first people killed. 29 years of service, and he was set to retire in a year. So again, we have to start a synagogue program by acknowledging so much heartbreak in the world around us. And I think that's important uh, for two reasons, because both of these reasons go to the core of why tonight is so important, why we're so grateful to Yehuda and his colleagues at Hartman for this. First, it feels like there's just a lot of rapid-fire bad stuff happening. There's a lot of rapid-fire bad stuff happening. Tree of Life was, there's no words, Show up for Shabbat generated so much intensity, not all of it good beforehand. I mean, it was good as we experienced it, but the buildup was painful. It's coming down from that, and now we have Thousand Oaks. In the middle was the midterm election. The day after the midterm election was the firing of the Attorney General. All of this stuff, ah, ah. So one thing that tonight gives us and Hartman gives us chance to breathe and a time to think and to reflect. Think about the world that we're living in where there's so much rapid-fire bad news. It's a chance to think about our world. Here's the other thing that's so important about tonight. Because of all this intensity, it's really hard to build a community where people feel so passionately in opposite directions. One could easily imagine the conversation 
if we're to be honest about it, about the day after firing of the Attorney General, where one side would say, oh my God, oh my God, this is subversion of our democracy. Where's Archibald Cox? What happened to the country when Archibald Cox did what he did? What happened to the voice that would say, no man is above the law, no president is above the law? This is the destruction of our democracy by new cycles. This is horrible. Why, aren't, why isn't the country not rising up? And the other half would say, oh, by the way, there was an election. And people know. And the result is accounted for. And that's why he did it. Because actually, most people in a lot of the heartland don't even care and just shut up already. That dialogue, oh my God, the country's democracy is ending. Oh my God, you're hysterical. Please be quiet. And please don't bring this into the shul. Enough, don't bring this into the shul. It's not productive. Means it's really hard to have a community where people feel like a large part of our, con of our congregation and country feel like the country's democracy is at mortal risk. And a large part of our congregation and country feel like that position is hysterical. And our country's doing great. And how do you create a community out of that difference? So we are super grateful. Yehuda Kirch is going to tell us how to do that. Well played, Rabbi, well played. Uh, so first of all, it is, uh, it's very special to be back in this congregation. It feels, because so many of you have come to study uh, at Hartman during the summer, it feels like a home crowd. Uh, if you haven't come to study with us in summer, I hope you do. It's like this, but um, the weather's better, and I don't have to wear a suit. So, um, so I do want to, do you want to encourage to, to study with us this coming summer in Jerusalem? I'm going to ask you to do something difficult with me tonight, which is, apropos the opening, to both bring in all of the challenges and tensions of what it means to be an American Jew right now and an American in this political moment. In other words, our goal tonight is not distraction from the news by studying Torah. If we did that, we wouldn't be talking about partisanship. There's, we could talk about shotness. We could come up with other things that are a, a distraction um, and a use Torah as, a, as an entertaining distraction. So on one hand, I'm asking you to bring some of that uh, emotional energy and some of that passion into this conversation. And at the same time, I wanted to ask whether there are some categories, some ideas, some texts that we might use to reinforce, uh, to challenge our moral and religious sensibilities about what it means to be an American Jew in this moment. And I can tell you, I'm going to say things that regardless of where you are in the political aisle, you're not going to like. Um, we'll get a chance in the Q&A to talk about some of that. But I want to try as best as we can, um, and in some ways as counterculturally as we can to America right now, to be in an intense uh, political and moral conversation and to stay in it and to see whether the result of even staying in it as that kind of countercultural posture can help us uh, when we go back out there. Tonight I want to map out a major challenge in Jewish life that we're all living through uh, and about which we're all aware. Uh, the rabbi in his opening uh, alluded to it, the ways in which um, our partisan culture is making it impossible for us 
to navigate relationships, uh, religious life, uh, our moral sensibilities. I want to try to map out why I think we've gotten to this point uh, and to try to understand the issue uh, as thoroughly as possible. I want to offer one theory rooted in our sources, in our tradition, of why I think modern Jewish history has actually led us to this point. And then I want to offer some conceptual strategies um, as maybe the way out or the way forward for the Jewish people in America to navigate this partisan political moment. Those of you who have studied with me before will know that um, my questions are sometimes better than the prescriptive answers. Um, but some of the work in, in facing a difficult challenge like this is simply getting the best possible grasp of why it is we've reached this moment and then trusting our instincts and sensibilities as the Jewish people who, have, who are a creative people and a people of ideas to believe that the stuff that has gotten us here can actually get us out of it. The challenge I want to play with tonight, apropos the title, The Moral, the Political, and the Partisan, is that partisanship is changing who we are as American Jews and is shifting our moral imagination as Jews. It's uh, changing who we see ourselves in community with and what we think Judaism is fundamentally about. And while in some ways, and we'll come back to this a little later, it might actually be a story that is predicated on good news for American Jews. American Jewish arrival is so profound and so significant that we are simply, as Jews, playing out a larger trend that is playing out for Americans. That's good news. That's the success of American Jewish at-homeness and assimilation is that we have the same problems that Americans have, <laughs> not different ones. So in some ways, while it actually originates in good news uh, in that it reflects a kind of fundamental arrival for Jews as part of American society, I think this issue is having consequences on how we think about Judaism, Jewish community, and Jewish peoplehood. The simplest articulation of the problem that I want to work on tonight is as follows. In the title of the talk, The Moral, the Political, and the Partisan, I want to suggest tonight that those three categories have effectively become conflated for American Jews, for Americans more broadly, but we'll talk about the Jewish people tonight. The categories of the moral, the political, and the partisan have become hopelessly conflated in ways that makes us conflate means and ends the things that we do to achieve ends are thought of as identical morally um, to what we do to get there. Um, we are conflating rightness and strategy, being right about what we want to achieve in the world and what strategies need to get there, and we are conflating messenger and message. The moral, the political, and the partisan are obviously in relationship to each other. These are categories that at minimum live on a spectrum to one another. Right, so if I have a certain moral conviction about the world, I'm going to need a political strategy to turn that moral conviction into something plausible as a vision to be able to shape a society. And then once I'm in that society and I have only one of two political options in front of me, I'm going to choose one partisan team as the instrument to play out those politics. So there's no question moral, political, and partisan are not irrelevant to one another. <laughs> They coexist on a spectrum from, from the most theoretical to the most applied. But there's a huge difference between thinking of these as on a spectrum to one another to thinking about themselves as identical for reasons that I want to unpack. Let's take an uncontroversial example like, I don't know, immigration. <laughs> um, a moral position right, might be something like, I believe that all human beings are created in the image of God. It's actually 
it's not just a moral position, it's actually a radical moral position, but it's one that's actually incredibly hard to dispute with other Jews about a fundamental commitment that's in the Jewish tradition. It's right there, Genesis 1. It's like our first, our first idea in Jewish tradition is in some ways our most radical. All human beings are created in the image of God. I might, I might then, because I have that moral position, believe that politically our societies should be guided towards high boundaries or low boundaries on the basis of those convictions in which I'm translating my, my belief that all humans are being created in the image of God into a broad set of political strategies. And I might then, as a result of that political commitment, come to the conclusion that the red team or the blue team has the best actual policy strategy to play out those political commitments on the basis of those moral commitments. But as we know, that is not actually what happens in our moral imaginations and our political lives. When it becomes incredibly easy to collapse the categories and to start assuming that those people who oppose the particular partisan strategies that we advance are not merely our enemies when it comes to that particular issue, they are not merely our enemies when it comes to a different political worldview, but they are actually our moral enemies. Anyone who votes on this side of the ticket or on the other side of the ticket has not merely chosen a different side in color war, but actually represents at their fullest a, a radical articulation of a totally different um, moral worldview. I want to talk about why I think this is so problematic, but as I alluded to before, this is not a condition that is unique in the Jewish community. This is a broader American political challenge that Jews are participating in. Uh, in last year, the uh, Pew did a study, not the Pew study that most Jews talked about, the other one that was more significant. Um, Pew did a study on partisanship in America and talked about the ways in which partisanship is at highs not previously seen since about the 20s. Um, so this is actually not just something that people are feeling, but actually is something that has been studied. The most remarkable statistic on partisanship in America is that your partisan political position, who you identify with, um, which party, Democrat or Republican, is a stronger ideological predictor of the gap between you and people who hold the opposite partisan political identification. It is stronger than race, gender, age, religious identification, or socioeconomic class. All five of those categories have now declined in, in comparison to partisan political position. Remember that myth that Americans used to tell about ourselves, even as recently as 20, 25 years ago, that the majority of Americans, by and large, the silent majority, are essentially centrist. And, right, and we go to the ballot booth, and that enables us to kind of bounce back and forth between a Democratic president or a Republican president, et cetera. It is, by and large, not true anymore. That is not true that the majority are centrists and a small percentage are hyperpartisan. Increasingly, the country is divided between red and blue. And increasingly, that uh, identification as red or blue is a much stronger predictor, as I indicated, of ideological polarity than all of these other categories that were thought um, previously um, to be more significant. As a result, and I think we see this happening in Jewish life, the, I, the adjectives that identify us as Jews are also becoming far less significant than partisan um, identification as Jews, right? So if once upon a time, the major differentiators that might have been in American Jewish life would have been with what denomination do you belong to, 
that might have been a stronger indicator of what's your worldview, what are your moral positions, um, how do you politically identify. If once upon a time for Jews in America, the strongest adjective that would have defined who belongs to your community was actually just Jewish, if you're Jewish, you're part of an other, and the internal differences between you and other Jews would have been less significant. Now, as well, for the Jewish community, your partisan political ideology is probably a stronger indicator of who you see yourselves as in political community with than any other denominational um, or other Jewish form of adjective. I'm seeing this happening in incredibly interesting ways in different communities around America where people have said to me more and more, I don't go to that shul, that's the Democrat shul. Right? If you're a rabbi, you know this already. This has happened already. Um, I don't go to that shul. That's the, that's the Republican shul. When it's amazing because I've heard it said by people who actually do care about the denominational expression. Right? They, they want shul to be a certain way. But the primary concern that they have is identifying in, in community together with people who subscribe to the same partisan viewpoint. But that would suggest is, and it's worth studying, if it's true for Americans that partisan political ideology is more significant as a predictor of polarity than age, race, gender, socioeconomic class, um, I don't remember what the fifth was, I would say that the equivalent might be for the Jewish community that partisan political identification is more significant than denomination, ethnicity, et cetera, right? The same categories are at play uh, in Jewish communal life. Now, there are a whole bunch of reasons as why we've gotten to this point as Americans and as Jews. Uh, although I, I want to indicate, I'm not sure how many of these are causes and how many of them are symptoms. <laughs> I don't know in, in this list whether these things are causing the present moment or, or the fact that we're seeing them are witnesses to the present moment, but let me give a couple. One is American Jews for a long time have had an identity crisis. We know that because American Jews for the last 30 or 40 years have been talking about Jewish identity. That's usually an indicator that you have an identity crisis. And I, actually, it's, it's more severe than that. People who have strong identities don't talk about identity. Liberal Jews talk a lot about identity. Haredi Jews don't run conferences on Jewish identity. They know that they're Jews, right? They have different issues and different problems. So American Jews have, by and large, already been experiencing something of an identity crisis, and therefore giving American Jews vehicles like the ones that are offered by a concrete political program that's attached to a partisan political platform is coherent. It's an identity that's strong. It unites you and connects you to a lot of other people. And it might be a stronger argument that many Jews are experiencing than the denominational or other frameworks that Judaism has offered them until this moment. So one symptom or cause for American Jews about the gravitation towards partisanship may be a broader identity crisis for American Jews. A second symptom or cause of why we're at a moment like this has to do with the demise, and this is true both in America and in Jewish institutions, the demise of central or transcendent institutions that, uh, that build public trust and command general respect. If you rewind 40 years in America, you would have been able to look at um, institutions like the New York Times or Harvard University, right, as being in some ways, yeah, in some ways you would have been able to look at those institutions as being in some ways above the public fray. 
viewed as viewed as and revered as um, being more significant than particular partisan political expressions. Now, the media is thought of as being in the tank for one side or the other side, depending on the media source. Universities are broadly criticized for being ideological spaces rather than nonpartisan spaces. In other words, it's no longer clear to us that we have institutions that command a broader respect. And I don't know whether that, again, that's a symptom or a cause, um, but the demise of institutions is significant. And here, for the Jewish community as well, we have been experiencing an institutional crisis over the last two generations where there are fewer and fewer Jewish institutions that are universally respected as somehow being non-political or transcending political. This, by the way, is a challenge that's also been taking place in Israel. A third symptom or a third cause here uh, relates to social media and more, more specifically or more broadly, the echo chambers that all of us um, increasingly live in. The social, uh, social media is a remarkable science experiment that we are perpetuating on ourselves, <laughs> um, uh, in which, uh, which, is, which is basically driven by uh, theory of cognitive dissonance and by business algorithms that are basically designed to keep people in the sites. This was inc incredible data uh, that the Wall Street Journal uh, showed after the 2016 election, which is that people on different partisan sides uh, in their Facebook post, post uh, feeds or their Twitter feeds are encountering radically different versions of the news. This is not surprise or news to anybody here. Um, but the reason for it, maybe partly due to the Russians, but the reason, the major reason for it is that the algorithm is designed to keep you on the site. What happens when a human being encounters a factual, a factual set of, um, a factual narrative that conflicts with their ideological positions with deeply held beliefs, the incredible uh, human brain, instead of changing our opinions, looks to suppress the facts. <laughs> That's the amazing human brain. The algorithm learned that. <laughs> and therefore, the algorithm wants to uh, make sure that people avoid doing that act of suppressing the dissonance, which would be closing the browser window. It learned us, right? Uh, it artificially, artificial intelligence learned us and figured out how to make sure that we were only accessing versions of news that would actually reinforce the views that we hold about the world as opposed to challenging them. But it's not just social media. You might feel very good about the fact that you're not on Facebook or Twitter. The, um, sociologists are beginning to note that there are geographical migrations around partisan political ideology. People are actually moving on the basis of who they want to live near, on the basis of their political positions. So that's, this, this is not simply I surround myself with a group of people online. It's actually changing where people are moving and where people are living. And finally, and this is just a weird paradox of all of this, um, the more there's a certain psychology of urgency. Les, you talked about this at the beginning. Things are happening so fast. And the more that things happen quickly, um, the more I think we look for the simplest possible articulations of ideologies and worldviews that enable us to feel secure that I may not be able to fix all of these problems, but I at least have a clear and coherent understanding of the world as it presents. So being able to say, I, I sign up for this team or that team is actually almost like a security blanket to respond to a culture of urgency. 
the costs for the Jewish community of our kind of, I would say, embrace of, or if you want to use a nastier word, our complicity in, um, in the culture of partisanship in America are, I think, extremely significant. Uh, one, is, um, one is to Jewish community itself. What happens when you conflate the moral, political, and the partisan is that your partisan enemies become your moral enemies. Now here's the thing. You can, um, you can live in community when these categories are separate. You can live in community together with other individuals who are your partisan opponents. In fact, we Americans have a technology for this. It's called Thanksgiving. And the Jewish people, <laughs> the Jewish people have a technology for this that goes back longer than Thanksgiving, which is Pesach Seder. Right? Those are the moments when people have classically and historically reminded themselves that as painful as it might be, we are family together with people who disagrees with us, and there's some priority or importance of actually reminding ourselves of that. Right? We can live in community together with people who are partisan opponents, but it is fundamentally impossible to really live in community together with people who you see as moral, uh, moral enemies. If I believe that you are actually morally perverse, you are a, an immoral person, how can, I, how can I let you have influence in my life? How can I have you around my children? How can I have you in my community? At a time at which um, you can clearly differentiate between the moral and the political and the partisan, the result is that you can keep the number of people who are your moral enemies really low. <laughs> Those people, right, if there's only a handful of people who I can say you are immoral or depraved and I can't actually be in community with you. But the minute I have conflated those categories, I have now decided that anyone who votes on the other side of the ticket is actually my moral enemy. The consequence of doing that is that the range of possible community now has actually been cut in half. How do I live in community together with people who I think are immoral? For the Jewish people, the conflating of moral and political and partisan may also be an existential fear. One of the most amazing things that American Jews have figured out how to do, which we have never done before in our history, is we have partisanized anti-Semitism. This is an amazing thing. <laughs> Terrible, but amazing. Um, what is, how remarkable is it now Republican Jews believe that the primary anti-Semitic threat facing the Jewish people in America is coming from the far left. It pertains to BDS, and it has to do with Jewish collective survival as connected to the state of Israel and radical politics. Jews who identify with the Democratic Party believe that the primary uh, anti-Semitic threat facing the Jewish people is coming from what are euphemistically called white nationalists, but in the good old days we called Nazis, um, and who are being emboldened and dog-whistled to by the administration. So in other words, we've basically decided that the anti-Semites who we think we most have to fight conveniently vote for the other side. In other words, we're not really fighting anti-Semitism, <laughs> we're fighting for our own electoral positions. Now here's the thing, they can both be anti-Semites. <laughs> Right? And in fact, they probably, there probably are. 
right? Anti-Semitism is this unbelievable thing that managed to metastasize and metamorphosize into every civilization that the Jews have found themselves. So I'm sure it can figure out how to live in both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. There's no reason to imagine why it has to be a zero-sum game. But when the Jewish people construct anti-Semitism as a zero-sum game, they also, we also, weaken our collective capacity to actually deal with it collectively. Right? So therefore, we are fighting um, the plausibility of an anti-Semitism narrative as opposed to actually fighting anti-Semites. There's a third big cost of the conflation of the moral and the political and the partisan, which is also to our own moral sensibilities. This is a tough one. I remember doing this. So this is like, my own failings. I remember during the Clinton impeachment hearings, feeling more scandalized by the fact that there was an impeachment, which I felt was, uh, was politically unfair, that was to me what was more troubling morally than President Clinton's behaviors. All right, now you cannot, we can argue what was good, what was bad, but it was morally reprehensible what the president had done. The history of his behavior was morally reprehensible. I don't, have to, I don't have to believe otherwise in order to have voted for him, right? But if the minute that I become more scandalized by losing politically than by the actual moral conviction of a politician's actions, I have collapsed the moral and political and the partisan. It's useful politically to come to that conclusion, but now I have perhaps damaged my own moral sensibilities. Last uh, two days ago, 56,000 people in, a, um, in an Illinois congressional district voted for an actual Nazi. Not calling him by names. He calls himself a Nazi. He's a Holocaust denier. 56,000 people voted for him. He's a Republican candidate who exploited the fact that the Democrat in a, in a highly Democrat congressional district was running on a post. So he just put his name in. The state GOP tried to get him off of the ticket. Ted Cruz told Illinois voters, don't vote for this guy, he's an actual Nazi. 56,000 people checked the box because it was more challenging for them to imagine not voting Republican than it was to vote Nazi. Now the majority of them, I'm sure, didn't know he was a Nazi and just voted for the ticket. But let's say 11 voters <laughs> were choosing, I choose Nazi over Democrat, out, then the notion that our moral sensibilities remain refined has been deeply corroded, right, by the belief that actually um, the outcome, the partisan outcome is superior to the moral conviction. So we have damaged, we're damaging community, possibly survival, our moral sensibilities, and I would say also the moral authority of our leaders. How many rabbis have told me over the past 12 months I can't get up in my congregation and speak about what I think are moral issues because I'm gonna be attacked by someone who thinks that I'm actually speaking about partisan issues, right? Minute I say the word immigration, everyone's like, right? What, are, what position are you gonna take that is gonna make me stand up and walk out? I can't tell you how many people walked out of high holiday services this year or congregations around the country because they felt that the rabbi went beyond, the rabbi is supposed to talk Torah and rabbis are talking politics. Well, unfortunately, inconveniently, the Torah is extremely political. <laughs> it's extremely political. It's not a partisan document, right? I don't think the Torah has like clear indicators on pre-existing conditions. 
I don't think it does. It's not a partisan document, but it is absolutely a political document. But if we collapse these categories, it becomes impossible for our religious leadership to actually use the Torah to talk about morals and to talk about politics and to hold the line between the political and the partisan. If our audiences in Jewish life have assumed that these things have become hopelessly conflated, it's impossible to do the work. And finally, I think moral, the, the final cost of this conflation is to politics and morality themselves. If I believe that moral, political, and partisan are identical, then you start to believe that your means are holy, right? Or that your ends are always justified. It's just not true. We know that it's not true about moral sensibilities. That I can be passionate about a moral outcome, but not believe that I should become compromised morally about everything I have to do to achieve that outcome. In fact, we know that the threshold by which we should be willing to do by any means possible to achieve certain outcomes has to be a very short list of things that you would say, by any means possible, I want to achieve that goal. But if I collapse these categories, the moral, political, and the partisan, I stop thinking in terms of a short list of the commitments I have to do, and I give myself a kind of get out of jail free card to do whatever I need to do in order to achieve these moral outcomes. How do we get here Jewishly? The thesis that I want to offer tonight of, of part of how we've gotten to this point is that I think the Jewish people, some point in the past century or so, made a category error, um, which was thinking about shifting from thinking about politics as an instrument of Jewish life to thinking about politics as the central, uh, the central uh, meaning of Jewish life, this, putting politics as, at the center of Jewish consciousness. I think one of the advantage that advantages that Jews had throughout diaspora by being powerless, right, and this is a little bit perverse, by being powerless, we as Jews were capable of holding a line very profoundly between our Jewishness, which was a moral and religious center, and politics where you had to get your hands dirty in order to survive and thrive. The advantage of that distinction was that Jews never forgot what, what was central to Jewish and what was instrumental to Jewish. I think one of the central category errors that American Jews are making and Israeli Jews are making is actually placing politics at the center of Jewish consciousness as definitional to, definitional to Jewishness as opposed to instrumental to Jewishness. If you look at your sources, I want to give you one classic example. This, the text that I think tells um, a, the most classic Jewish political story, which is the fourth chapter of Esther and the ninth chapter of Esther. Esther is a perfect case study for thinking about Jewish politics for a ton of reasons, um, one of which is that God famously doesn't appear as a character in the story, which has led many readers, I think correctly, to intuit that this story is Jews trying to figure out how they are supposed to navigate their way in the world without the security of divine intervention. It's a big political story of Esther, and it's also the crudest political story of Esther. It is famously the first, major, first and only major biblical story that takes place outside of the land of Israel. So this is Jews figuring out on their own. Fourth, fourth chapter of Esther starts, and, it, and it's, a, it's a mockery um, of, um, of Jewish politics, but it also tells a truth about who Jews are politically in diaspora. When Mordechai learned all that had happened, Mordechai tore his clothes and put on his sackcloth and ashes. He went through the city crying out loudly and bitterly until he came in front of the palace gate. 
for one could not enter the palace gate wearing sackcloth. Also, in every province that the king's command and decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and everybody lay in sackcloth and ashes. So what has happened so far? Have the Jews been massacred? No. What happened? The Jews were threatened. The first diasporic move of the powerless Jew is that even before anybody gets killed, you sit shiva. It's actually unbelievable. Mordechai tears his clothes before anything has actually happened. This is the first witness of this text that is about the crudeness of powerlessness, right? The first thing you do is you actually concede if you're really powerless. What's the second thing that diaspora Jews classically did in history when they were threatened after basically preparing for the worst? Asking this question of, who do we know? That's the other great move that Jews make in moments like this. And in this case, conveniently, we got somebody on the inside. Not only do we have somebody on the inside, Esther, who had to do unspeakable things in order to be the person who we placed on the inside, but conveniently, Esther also, remember, never had told anybody that she was actually in it with the Jewish people. So she's really, really useful. She's on the inside, but she's hidden. The next move that Mordechai makes, which is a witness to how Jews think about politics, is pull whatever strings you have at your disposal. And he call, sends a message back and forth to Esther. And then famously, Esther says in verse 10, with the following reply, all the king's quarters and the people of the king's provinces know that if any person enters the king's presence in the inner court without having been summoned, there's but one law for them, that is death. I haven't been summoned for 30 days. And Mordechai told, told, was told what Esther had said. Mordechai had this message delivered to Esther. Do not imagine that you of all the Jews will escape with your life by being in the king's palace. On the contrary, if you keep silent in this crisis, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another quarter while you and your father's house will perish. And who knows, perhaps you have attained to royal position for just such a crisis. The way this text is oftentimes read is to imply that um, when it says, who knows, perhaps you have been there exactly for this purpose, ah, uh -uh, that's like a clue that God is taking place in this story. No. <laughs> that's not what's taking place here. I don't know. Here's where you could be useful. <laughs> I don't know. Right? He doesn't know. He says, I have, I'm going to play the cards that I have. And if you don't participate with us in this moment, that is, if you don't identify with the Jews in the moment like this, what does it mean when it says, um, you and your father's house will perish? Why? Maybe we will take care of you. I think this is a veiled threat. Mordechai is basically saying to Esther, listen, my, your utility to me <laughs> is that you're the strongest instrument I have in the system. What's powerful, though, about this story is that Esther is Esther at home, or Hadassah at home. She has a Jewish name at home, and she is Esther as an instrument within the king's castle. In other words, there's a clear understood differentiation between what Jewishness is, that's our religious and our moral framework, and the stuff you have to do in the world of politics in order to enable the Jewish people to survive. And then incredible things happen, of course. And by the time we get to Esther 9, by which point um, most people in shul have stopped paying attention, but it's actually, um, it's actually the bleakest, one of the bleakest pieces of all of Tanakh, of all of the Hebrew Bible. 
also a mockery of Jewish politics. And so this is now after the decree has been overturned. Right? So now it's possible for the Jews to be able to not be killed. On the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, when the kings and command and decree were to be executed, the very day in which the enemies of the Jews had expected to get them in their power, the opposite happened, and the Jews got their enemies in their power. Throughout the provinces of the king, the Jews mustered in their cities to attack those who sought their hurt. Not defend themselves, attack those who sought their hurt, and no one could withstand them, um, for the fear of them had fallen on all of the peoples. This is how you know it's a little bit of a satire. Really, the world is scared of Jews. The, everybody is scared of the Jews. Indeed, all of the officials of the provinces um, showed more deference to the Jews because they were scared of Mordechai. And now you have a moment at which you, have, uh, you could have a detente, right? The guarantee of mutual assured destruction. They want to kill you. You're capable of fighting back. Everybody walks to the battlefield, smiles, drops their pitchforks, and goes back home. Mordechai was powerful in the royal palace, so the Jews struck at their enemies with the sword, slaying and destroying. They wrecked their will upon their enemies. This text imagines right, a ludicrous possibility that the Jews, when they actually become powerful, get intoxicated with power. But the idea of Esther fundamentally is... You do what you need to do to survive, and you don't let yourself become so obsessed with power and politics that you become like them. By the end of the chap ninth chapter of Esther, Mordechai is an indication that when Jews become powerful, they can be just like anybody else. The message, I think, that was internalized for much of Jewish history was do in the political world what you need to do, never conflate means and ends. We are not that people. We are the people who knows that there's a deep religious and moral sensibility to what it means to become Jewish. And we are scared that when we do the political, we start coming to the conclusion that that is the totality of what it means to be Jewish. By the time we get to the 19th and 20th century, that story starts to fade for the Jewish people and something else begins to happen. The Jews see themselves, we see ourselves, as needing different political solutions to our realities, late 19th, early 20th century, and Jewish politics becomes the core discipline for the Jewish people of what it means to be Jewish. Think about that. For the past hundred years, I think, the Jewish people have become obsessed with politics. That is the primary activity that Jews do. The late John Wucher wrote about this in Sacred Survival. Jewish synagogues in the 1950s were built on post-Holocaust survivalism and a commitment to the state of Israel. Jews were not more religious in the 1950s. They didn't go to synagogue more because they believed more in God than contemporary Jews. They did so because it was an organizing principle for a Jewish political identity in America. Jews in Israel have become fixated on politics as the primary discipline by which the Jewish people conduct and transact their lives. What's amazing is Achad Ha'am, uh, the, the, the great Jewish thinker, Asher Ginsburg, in 1897 at the First Zionist Congress, warns the Jewish people what is going to happen. <laughs> he warns them and says, you're gonna, what he fears is that the more political we become, we are going to come to the conclusion that politics is the center of our identity. He fears this. It's like prophecy reading it in 1897. He says, I'm on the top of page four. The secret, I think I'm on the top of page four. The secret of our people's persistence 
as I have tried to show elsewhere, is that at a very early period, the prophets taught us to respect only spiritual power and not to worship material power. For this reason, the clash with enemies stronger than ourselves never brought the Jewish people as it did to other nations in antiquity to the point of self-effacement. So long as we're faithful to this principle, our existence has a secure basis. Uh, for in spiritual power, we are not inferior to other nations and we have no reason to efface ourselves. But a political ideal which does not rest on the national culture is apt to seduce us from our loyalty to spiritual greatness and to beget us in a tendency to find the path of glory in the attainment of material power and political dominion, thus breaking the thread that unites us with the past and undermining our historical basis. What Achara Am is saying is, you can be political if your politics are based on a moral foundation because you never conflate the two you never come to believe that your primary identity is about your political goals, and you remain secure in the belief that you are about something bigger than the political expressions that you need to undertake in order to achieve your short-term political goals. He says in the following line, his concession to politics is, needless to say, if the political ideal is not attained, it will have disastrous consequences, right? I know we need a Jewish state, I got it. I know we need politics. But as he goes on, even if it is attained under present conditions, when we are a scattered people, not only in the physical sense, but also in the spiritual sense, even then Judaism will be in great danger. Almost all of our great men, those, that is, whose education and social position fit them to be at the head of a Jewish state, are spiritually far removed from Judaism and have no true conception of its nature and its value. Such men, however loyal to their state um, and devoted to its interests, will necessarily regard those interests as bound up with foreign cultures and so forth. I'm gonna to go to the next paragraph. Such a Jewish state that is fundamentally about politics and not about a more transcendent moral vision would spell death and utter degradation for our people. We should never achieve sufficient political power to achieve respect while we would miss the living moral force within. The puny state being tossed about like a ball between its powerful neighbors and maintaining its existence only by diplomatic shifts and continual truckling to the favorite of fortune would not be able to give us a feeling of national glory. And the national culture in which we might have sought and found our glory would not have been implanted in our state and would not be the principle of its life. So we would really be then, much more than we are now, a small and insignificant nation enslaved in spirit to the favorite of fortune turning an envious and covetous eye on the armed forces of our powerful neighbors, and our existence as a sovereign state would not add a glorious chapter to our national history. Achadaam answers with this, ends, the, ends his speech with this devastating question. Were it not better for an ancient people, which was once a beacon to the world, to disappear than to end by reaching such a goal as this? What is the moment at which the commitment to Jewish survival, which requires of you placing politics at the center of what it means to be Jewish is an actual bartering of Jewishness for a survival that's not worth it. Eight, eight, this is 1897 at the First Zionist Congress. It's like a great moment in Jewish chutzpah. Reminding the people there's something happening here. You have shifted from politics as the expression of Judaism where I know very clearly there's culture, there's morality, there's religion, and then there's politics you have actually collapsed these in ways that are becoming dangerous to us. Um, we in contemporary Judaism see this happening everywhere and all the time. There was a, a week this summer 
when all three major American Jewish denominations were savaged by a political crisis. In the same week, the Orthodox Union honored now former Attorney General Jeff Sessions uh, with a plaque the week of the, um, the, week of the, <laughs> the, uh, of the border separation controversy. They had handed him a plaque that said, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof, Justice, Justice, You Shall Pursue. And it was so tone deaf that even though they wanted to stick with it, they actually had to publicly apologize to their base. The same week, uh, the conservative movement was being um, roundly criticized by, if not now, an anti-occupation organization on the basis of what they perceived as, as insufficient or counterfactual Israel education about the occupation. And the reform movement had their um, uh, HUC, I'm sorry, in Los Angeles, their, for their commencement speaker, uh, Michael Chabon got up and gave a rip-roaring immigration speech about American immigration, the occupation in Israel, and intermarriage. All three denominations were ostens who are ostensibly religious and moral movements were savaged by political crises. In some ways, the fulfillment of a chad ha'am is the awareness of the ways in which these categories have been hopelessly collapsed. In the final three minutes, I will answer this problem. Um, <laughs> I want to suggest three ideas um, that we might take forward with us as the beginning of a conversation of what might the Jewish people do differently in trying to rehabilitate a sense that the moral, the political, and the partisan have to be pulled apart. The first idea I want us to throw out is to ask, what might a covenant between American Jewish value, between American values and Jewish values look like for American Jews that does not dictate particular partisan outcomes? What might a covenant between serious Jewish values and American values look like that does not yield automatic partisan conclusions? Text for, for, the fourth text that's here comes from Rav Moshe Feinstein, one of the most significant halachic decisors for American orthodoxy in the 20th century. This text comes from 1984 when the JCRC of New York asked Rav Moshe Feinstein to encourage ultra-orthodox Jews to vote. You would imagine today that a version of that in whatever community it was would be not just go vote, but go vote for these guys because they're going to be better for our community. Ramosha says, writes the following letter, and it's stunning. On reaching the shores of the United States, Jews found a safe haven. The rights guaranteed by the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights have allowed us the freedom to practice our religion without interference and to live in this republic in safety. A fundamental principle of Judaism is hakaras hatov, recognizing the benefits afforded us and giving expression to our appreciation. Therefore, it's incumbent upon each Jewish citizen to participate in the democratic system, which safeguards the freedoms we enjoy. The most fundamental responsibility incumbent on each individual is to register and to vote. Therefore, I urge all members of the Jewish community to fulfill their obligations by registering as soon as possible and voting. By this, we can express our appreciation and contribute to the continued security of our community. Incredible. It's an incredible text because it is infused with Jewish moral values and it informs people on how to be political in the world and it stops short of telling people how to be political in the world. It's, this is a highly Jewish text. He's got deep Jewish values going in here around appreciating the good. He has a deep understanding of America 
freedom of religion, the ways in which Jews have been welcomed into this country, and he fuses the religious tradition with an American tradition in a way that stops short of defining it on the basis of a partisan expression. Idea number one is, what does it look like for us as a Jewish people to really think about civics? Really think about civics. How does, how does Jewishness make us better Americans, and what are the expressions of America that have been instrumental to who we are as Jews? And not always are those expressions translated immediately and imminently into particular policy positions. It's actually, this is a text that can be read with Jews who vote differently. This is a bipartisan text, but it's still Jewish, and it's still serious, and it's still political. It just manages to hold the line at not translating everything political um, into partisanship. Idea number two, what might it look like for us to redivide these disciplines among our leaders? Pirkei Avot, Rabbi, Yehuda, Rabbi Shimon says, there are three crowns, the crown of Torah, the crown of priesthood, and the crown of the monarchy, but the crown of a good name outweighs them all. This is one of the original texts for the notion of separation of powers. The idea that the rabbis are saying that people who are political leaders are not the same as the people who are religious leaders, who are not the same as the people who are sacerdotal leaders, the people who actually run the institutions of Jewish life where religion and ritual are played out. These are actually different things. Part of our collapsing, what Achad Ha'am is warning us, is that when we imagine that there is one profile for leaders in the community, we assume that those same people are religious leaders and are political leaders. This is the force that makes for the strange need, and we do this because we're the citizens, that every Jewish institution has to release press releases about every major political event. We're doing this to ourselves. That's what's actually turning our, you know, why does the rabbinical assembly release press releases about every major political event? It makes no sense. In part, it happens because we, as the citizens, have turned to our Jewish institutions and have collapsed the image of what Jewish leadership looks like. If we want our rabbis to teach Torah, we have to give them the space to actually teach Torah. We can't demand of them to be hyper-political because I won't listen to a sermon about Torah because I'm thinking about the news. We can't demand that about, of them and then be angry when they say political things that we don't like. If we want to really imagine a different landscape of what leadership can look like in the Jewish community, idea number two has to be to try to re-separate these pieces. And I guess the third takeaway that I want to think with you more about is um, what does it look like for us as Jews to try to construct communities in America where values and study are at the center of Jewish life rather than defining our institutions of Jewish life on the basis of ideological positions. This is a very hard thing to do. <clears throat> in a moment of political anxiety, one of the things that happens is that institutions become very concerned about who's in and who's out. And the easiest way to do that is to simplify the boundaries of in and out on the basis of political positions. You believe this? You can't be in my community. It's actually usually a witness to being insecure about who we are and using the shortcut of ideological boundaries to keep people out. The rabbis have an incredible story, one of my all-time favorite rabbinic texts, and with this I'll conclude, 
which imagines how Judaism got reconstituted in the wake of one of the worst political controversies the Jewish people had, which was the failed politics of the Bar Kokhba rebellion. Okay, that, that went badly. How does Judaism get reconstituted? What you might think would have happened is that a group of people who were angry at the people who led them into the Bar Kokhba rebellion would have reconstituted Judaism by declaring that people with radical politics have to stay out. That's what you would think would happen. You would respond to a period of polarization with the construction of clear boundaries. They do the opposite. At the end of the persecution, our rabbis gathered in Usha, and these were they. Um, I'm on a, on a one-man crusade to get people to stop talking about Yavna as the moment where Judaism was born and instead talk about Usha. It doesn't sound as good, but it's a better story. Um, our rabbis entered into Usha, and these are they, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Nechemia, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Shumim, Bar Yochai, and Rabbi Eliezer, the son of Rabbi Yossi Aglili, and Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov. These rabbis gather in the house. They send to the house of the elders of the Galilee, saying, all who have already taught, let them come and teach. All who have not yet studied, let them come and learn. In other words, if anyone has wisdom, join us. Some of you have the wisdom of teachers, and some of you have the wisdom of learners. Once everybody's in one place, we don't spend the next two weeks figuring out the rules of membership, the guidelines for discourse. What happens next? They entered and they learned and they met all of their needs. Because also what's amazing here, it's not they entered and some people taught and some people learned. Once everybody is in that space together, they are in the place of learning. The third idea I want to throw on the table is what does it look like for the American Jewish community to respond to a period of polarization by erecting institutions that make possible deep learning. That that's, the only that's the only technology by which the Jewish people might be able to emerge for this. I said at the outset um, that we're experiencing a challenging partisanship that has a lot to do with what it means to be an American. I tried to outline um, why we are in the business of conflating the moral, uh, the political, and the partisan. What are the forces that are at play in America, and what are the forces at play in Jewish life? And what are the costs? I suggested um, with our texts that I think we, as the Jewish people, have collectively displaced politics from being an instrument to moving it to the center of Jewish life, and that's part of the reason why we are reaping what we have sown. And my suggestions here tonight about redividing these disciplines of authority, um, constructing community with values at the center, and rehabilitating a covenant between Jewishness and Americanness that is more about civics than it is about particular policies might be some directions forward. Thank you. Please keep uh, these short questions, no speeches, short questions. Anybody have a short question? Short question, Bob. Come on up. No speech, short question. <laughs> Can APAC be seen, as you described, Thanksgiving uh, and Passover and be an institution in the Jewish community in American life that uh, uh, rises above. Which institution? APAC. APAC, okay. Thank you, Bob. 
Next, short question. I have a question about APAC. Short question. Short question, please. Yeah, I find myself challenged by uh, uh, the actual events that, that we're living in where, uh, uh, at least in my, in my view, uh, certain political actions in the real world implicate fundamental uh, moral issues, and I'll mm -hmm. just uh, uh, refer to the uh, separation of children at the, uh, mm -hmm. at the borders. Uh, uh, I find that to be uh, a crass, inhumane, and uh, indefensible action. I, I don't see that as a political issue. I just think tearing yeah. apart families is, is the issue. So I'm, I'm sort of in a conundrum about how to pull apart these uh, yeah. threats. Great. Thank you. We'll take two more short questions. Well, you really did answer everything. Okay. <laughs> yes. I'd like you to comment on political discourse, uh, politeness, not politeness, and how will that contribute to uh, the world you see uh, mm -hmm. fixed by the f your points here? Yeah. Thank you. We'll take a fourth uh, short uh, question. Steve, short question. <laughs> on the issue of civics versus policies, what is the distinction? And also on the issue of today, many people look to Judaism for answers to the moral question, not necessarily the partisan issue. I'm not so concerned about the Democrat versus the Republican, but what is, how does Judaism contribute to understanding these contemporary issues? And in, and in, in many ways, many of us are looking at that. So that's where I try to understand yeah. what's the difference between policies and civics. Great. Okay, you got your, you got a, a plateful right there. Um, okay, so I, I don't, I don't think, it, I, I am not a, I don't think it's single institutions response to the question about APAC. This single institution and its loyalties should be the place in which or are capable or even are interested and willing to serve in a kind of transcendent role. Um, I think there's actually a lot of work to be done to figure out how um, Jews who participate in their active activism around Israel who don't do so via APAC um, how can those people who belong to those institutions see themselves as basically part of the same whole? Uh, in some ways, the, the controversy in the last number of years about APAC and J Street, which I, I think we will look back as being one of the quaintest, naive fights that we had in Jewish life, where um, I, I spend time at both of those conferences, and the people are basically the same. <laughs> They have small policy differences, by and large, um, and we view them as like, that's the big difference in the Jewish world. The big divide in the Jewish world is between whether Israel is a significant and meaningful part of your Jewish life and you care about what happens there or not, and that's much more pronounced for the Jewish people. So I would be much more interested in building a larger tent, so to speak, around a relationship to Israel where we are a little bit more agnostic about the portal, institutional portals through which people are in relationship to Israel than invested in like fighting this institution versus um, for another institution. Uh, I, I agree with you, the separation of um, children at borders is, uh, is a political issue that is also a massive moral failure and a stain on our country. I regret as a voter from the Democratic Party 
that some of that pre-existed the current administration, and that's actually politically inconvenient to turn it into simply a partisan issue. Um, it also lives, it doesn't take place in a vacuum, it takes place in the context of a country that has simply not figured out two sides of a coherent immigration policy, and therefore um, a coherent and a moral and a plausible immigration policy, and therefore some of our worst forces at play, which include both um, failure to act or politically motivated nastiness, produce outcomes like this. I would say the broader piece is, if you witness moral failure, I am not telling people to stop being activists on behalf of moral issues. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that one of the strategies that we have to figure out is, number one, why do people who are on the other side of the political aisle, who, let's, let's take for granted, not all of them are bad people. How are they experiencing that story? What is bothering them? And if you want to influence them, what would be the way in which you would enter into a relationship with them? Because it ain't going to be by saying, our side is moral and your side is immoral. What that will most likely do is, push, is create the backlash of separating us from thinking of ourselves in different moral universes. It's actually precisely when we witness moral failings in our society that we have to figure out how do we work towards a society in which the majority of our people see these as moral failures rather than only single sides of the electorate seeing something as a moral failure. So I, and I, I, am, I don't know what to do about that, um, but I'm fairly certain that deciding that anybody who voted for the president is therefore more morally complicit in this failure and therefore not part of a world that I can be a part of is not gonna actually solve for the problem that you wanna solve for. The difference um, between civics and politics, and then I'll come back to the civility piece, I'm, I, I don't know whether this works, but this is, where I'm, this is what I'm playing with, is that civics might involve a, a, belief, in, a belief in the political that does not cross over automatically to the partisan. In other words, and the place where I'm thinking about it is at that intersection between what is, what we, like take as a thought experiment, what have been the Jewish values that we have curated in America, and what have been the American values we have curated in America, and what, how have we aligned those two to thrive in America? I think Jewish communities all across America have made different choices. I prioritize this piece of America and this piece of my Jewishness. But the moment that I'm willing to actually investigate and interrogate that process, I'm opening myself up to the possibility that people are thinking of themselves as political actors in ways that are really not limited just to who they vote for, but are actually creating a larger covenant between Jewishness and Americanness. That's, there is this, and that's why Rav Moshe's um, piece here is a useful example. You know, the difference between civics and partisanship is are you happy that other people vote even if they vote for the other team? <laughs> and I think m most people in America now would say no, <laughs> uh, right? Um, in other words, I, wanna, I basically want to win and I'm willing to lose something in the democratic culture in, in order for that to happen. So I, that's what I'm partly trying to, go, to, to pull back towards. The question on civility, yes, I am pro-civility. Um, I actually feel this is the place in which we are becoming morally compromised because that's the means and ends thing. I don't think it means that you have to, you have to respond to incivility with civility all the time. I think I understand why people want to push back. 
But um, but I I am I I don't know. The way that we will repair our society is by being committed to our principles rather than playing down to the worst impulses. And this, you know, your, your question of, around what does Judaism have to offer this, the answer is like everything, <laughs> right? This isn't, an, that, and that's, and, and, and here, what I'm, what I'm exactly trying to avoid is when, you know, a colleague of mine who's a major reform rabbi in America said to me, I don't know why I go to the, the Union Reform Judaism Biennial and there is no daylight between the movement, the movement and um, the platform of the Democratic Party. And what she's concerned about is, it's not that she thinks that those positions are wrong. I think she thinks those positions are right. What she's concerned about is now I have turned Judaism into a weaker version of itself because it's only that stuff out of my tradition that I've curated which lines up efficiently with the things that I already support. So here's this rich wisdom tradition that we are turning from wisdom into um, talking points. And the only way to actually do this business of separating between the moral, the political, the partisan is actually in some ways reclaiming Torah as a wisdom tradition. So Yehuda, first of all, thank you. I just want to close with two comments and then we'll close. First, I just loved, loved, loved your talk. And I want to name what I love about it. First of all, you described the real world, the world that we inhabit. The real world that we inhabit of ideas and complexities that rage within us and among us and between us and that create challenges to continue thriving in a community. You name our real world. Number two, you just say so much smart stuff about that real world. Like all these principles that you have, they're like so smart. They're like real and they're, they're wise. It's like wisdom literature happening in real time. Number three, you, um, you give us sources that are deeply anchored in Jewish tradition, uh, biblical, rabbinic, modern, and they speak to the real world. Number four, you don't tell you invite and you ask. You don't tell, you invite and you ask. And number five, like my head is spinning with ideas, not answers, but ideas that flow from your lecture. And all the ideas that come from your general pieces of wisdom and the texts and the invitations to think uh, are just deepen, deepen, deepen and, and fulfill the aspiration of making this a place of Torah and deep learning. That all people of all political parties and jerseys and stripes can come together on. So this is just classic Hartman. It leaves you with deeper thinking and important questions uh, and not answers that you impose, but questions that allow us to come to our own answers. So for all those reasons, I want to say thank you again. And now I just want to give you one answer, which is, if you love this, you will love Hartman. So join us in Jerusalem. You get this plus Jerusalem. Lila Tov. <laughs>